important. All right, if you'll turn with me, we're going to Psalm 19. I started it last time I was here. Psalm 19. So, today we'll see if we can finish up what we started last time. Finish our exegesis of it. I, uh, I just absolutely love this psalm. And part of it is because it is kind of a condensed version of Psalm 119. So, when I heard uh, Benjamin... Reading this morning out of Psalm 119, I was like, yes, it's gonna, that, that's going to flow right in. So Psalm 119 is basically about the glory of God's word. And Psalm 19 is kind of a condensed form of that, okay? Psalm 19 is a lot shorter, obviously. It's only 14 verses. Psalm 119 is a bit longer than that. <laughs> the longest chapter in the entire scripture. So let's do this. Let's start out by reading through Psalm 19. And then we'll pray and get into this. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven, its circuit to the other end, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect. Amen. Converting the soul. I feel like I could stop right now and preach an entire message on that one little line. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. It's not your tricks. It's not the wonderful things you've figured out or the eight-step program that's going to make believers or convert the soul. It's God's word. That's what he's endured with power. Okay, I've got to go on before I spend too much time. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We know that your word is true altogether. Though we are not, God, though my words as a man are not true and holy altogether, yours are. Your testimony is sure. Your word is perfect. God, I ask that you would do your work through your word today, that you would not let it fall to the ground, that you would accomplish what you've set it out to do, that you would make stony hearts broken and and give hearts of flesh, Lord. I ask you for this, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. All right. Amen. Meaning it's true. Or let it be. Now, as I'm fond of saying... A good teacher always does review. So let's take a minute and recall what we talked about last time. We said in this psalm, God is revealing himself in two specifically different 
distinctly different manners, and yet they're intertwined. They're different, but they're intertwined. First, in verses 1 through 6, he's revealed himself in his creation. He's revealed himself to everyone in what he's made, his created world. We might say it this way, he's revealed himself in his world. Verses 1 through 6, he reveals himself to all humanity in his world. All humanity has enough light through the creation that they'll stand accountable before a holy God. Turn with me real fast. I'll show that to you. Turn with me. Let's go to uh, Romans chapter 1 real quickly. Try to get there quickly. Not spend too much time here. If you go to Romans chapter 1, bookmark my place so I don't lose it. Romans chapter 1, if you get down here, let's start at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Now listen, you can't suppress the truth if you don't know it. The truth is every person in their heart of hearts knows there's a God. And I've been there before. I was an agnostic one time in my life. There's just some people that try to play like it's not true. And the way that they will pretend God is not true is by suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's kind of like, have you ever, ever gone to the, you've gone to the, you go to the pool in the summer, you got the beach or the uh, little volleyball, right? Or the soccer ball, you're pushing it down, you're hiding it, playing who's got the ball, right? We used to do that when I was a kid. I don't know if you all do that. But in the act of pushing, pushing it down, because it's pushing back against you, you're in contact with the ball. It is not that we are trying to tell unbelievers about a God they don't know about. They do know God. In fact, in this passage in the Greek, it says, Nantes ton theon, the definite article, knowing the God. It's not like, you know, early in the morning when you're kind of bleary-eyed, not real sure, what, what, there's a God? What kind of God is he? There really is a... No, they know there's a God, and they know who he is. And they don't like that fact. So they press it down. Because what may be known of God, this is verse 19, what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. You have an unbeliever tell you they just need more evidence for God. You need to quote that scripture to yourself. Because you're going to get into this game with the atheist, which is basically, hey, show me more proof that there's a God. And you give them a proof and they go, oh, yeah, well, what about this? And you give them another one, oh, yeah, well, what about this? That's just a game. That is a game that an unregenerate, hardened heart plays because they don't want to be accountable to the true God that they know exists. Don't get caught in that. That's a fool's errand. doesn't matter how many times you shoot down their fallacious arguments. doesn't matter how many times you give them a hundred different proofs for God's existence. They will not believe it because their heart is already set. I've decided I don't want to believe. Now I'm going to play this game, and I'm just going to wait until we get to a place where you just don't know. i got news for you. I don't care how long you study. You will not have every argument and every answer. I have studied science and apologetics for more than 20 years. And I promise, I do not have every argument and every answer. And eventually, I can play that game with an unbeliever, and they can get to the point where they go, what about this? And I go, well, I don't really know. I haven't studied. See, I got you. That's a game. They're not looking for truth. They're looking for a way to escape the truth. Don't play that game with them. He has shown it to them clearly. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. They're without excuse. Verse 21, because although they knew God, 
Did they know God or not? I'm not sure. Gosh, what does the Bible say about that? Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And the chapter goes on and says basically what came about because of that. All the things that they do because they've decided to become fools. Guess where we are in our culture? We're an entire culture that's decided we don't want the truth of God. We'll push it down. And God is putting on display that you push my truth down, you will become fools. And that's exactly what we've become. We can't figure out what bathroom to use. And we think, we'll stand up and say, look how wise we are. Not wise, we're fools. You push God's truth down, what do you have left but error and folly? That's it. There is no other option. It's not like three roads. Well, we got the Christian road and the non-Christian road, and then there's somewhere in the middle that neutral ground. There is no neutral ground. If you decide you will push down God's truth, you will not accept God's truth. You have nowhere else to go but error and folly. <clears throat> now, back to 19. Psalm 19. So, in verses 1 to 6, he's revealed himself in his world. And then in verses 7 to 14, we see a shift, a very important shift. He's saying basically this, even though my, my glory is sublime, it's incredible, it's, it's majestic in creation, there's something even greater. There's something even greater than all the glory in his created world. What is it? Well, it's his word. He's revealed himself specifically through his word. He's revealed himself in a special way. Verses 7 to 14 tells us he's revealed himself specifically in his word. Which is why, as theologians, we'll call verses 1 to 6, we say creation and science, that's God's general revelation. But God's word is different. Verses 7 through 14, God's word is different. What is his word? His word is his special Revelation. It's very specific. It's very detailed. There are things you can know about creation simply by reading God's word that you cannot know just by studying. Look, I love to study science, okay? I'm a guy that spent most of my life with an eyeball on a microscope or a telescope or test tubes or whatever. But I'm telling you, there are things you can learn about creation that you cannot learn just by that. You will not lose your reward, sir. I love you, brother. Man, I've missed this place. <sighs> Thank you, brother. <clears throat> there are things, though, that you can learn about creation just in God's word that you cannot grab by just sticking your, your, your eye on a, on a microscope or a telescope or, or studying a test tube or doing a, a, a lab experiment. You can't tell me about the creation of the world. You can't tell me about the creation of the universe. You can imply and that's what scientists today try to do. Well, since everything's moving at this speed, if we rewound it, it must have been 13 and a half billion years ago we had a big explosion. How do you know that? Well, just inferring. We don't know. It's theory. It's philosophical theory wrapped up in scientific garb. But you can know about God and about his creation through his word. His word is perfect. It is pure. It is the conversion of the soul is tied up in his word. God's word is what he's endued with power. God's word is what he's endued with, if you will, with 
the ability to convert the soul. The Holy Spirit, God's word, convert the soul. You can put a, you can take an atheist and put them in front of a microscope or a telescope or whatever, and you're not going to convert their soul through that. God's word will convert their soul. If you have to choose on being an expert in science or being an expert in the scriptures, I promise you're going to get more mileage, not just in this life, but obviously eternally as well, by knowing God's word. If you have to pick between those two, know God's word. We should be a people that know and love God's word. So God has revealed himself to mankind through his creation in a general way, but in a very specific way. He has revealed himself through his word. So creation gives us enough evidence to condemn sinners, but it takes the revelation of God in his word to save them. There's something greater than all of God's creation. There's something higher. There's something more majestic. There's something more perfect. We like to say something that's not true. Listen, we like to point out at the creation, look, look at that perfect creation that God made. It's not perfect anymore. Yes, God created it perfectly, but guess what? We ruined it. This is why we can't have nice things, right? My wife and I like to say that. We've got four kids that are six and under. There's lots of things in our house that started out nice that aren't as much anymore. Why? Small hands. Guess what? God can say, in essence, the same thing. He created it perfectly, and yet we have ruined it. I'll give you an example. I, I saw a, I, I might have said this last time, I saw a, a, a nest of doves, and there was a woodpecker. Mama, Mama dove leaves to go get food for her babies. There's a woodpecker who saw that, and I watched, jump down on the nest and peck a hole in the back of the head and slurp out the brains of those little baby doves. I, I know this is going to sound crazy because I'm a science guy. Like, I watched predation and I learned about all that. still disturbed me. It was like, what, what kind of cruelty is that? But the truth is, that's nature. Nature is red in tooth and claw. It's a, it's a carnival of blood, as has once been said. Why? That's not the creation that God created. Creation was not like that to begin with. Okay? It wasn't cruel and brutal and full of death and carnage and blood. No, God's creation was perfect. What happened? Man came in and sinned and allowed all kinds of... Sin did not just affect humanity. Sin affected everything. Sin affected the way that animals relate with each other. Sin affected the way that animals relate with man. Tigers weren't eating people. Actually, we don't even know if there was tigers back then. We don't know what the original created kind was. But it wasn't doing that. You ever seen Ghost in the Darkness? About the two lions that ate all the the men that were making the railway through Africa? That wasn't going on then. Why does that happen now? Because the creation has been affected by our sin. And you can't see that through a microscope. You can see that creation is different. You can see that it's cruel. But you don't know that it changed. You don't know what made it that way unless you know God's word. There's something greater than all the glory in God's world, and that is his word. I told you there's people in Christendom today who are so-called apologists who will call science the 67th book of the Bible. Right? Because the Bible, of course, is 66 books. It's an anthology. It's God's anthology, 66 books. And they'll say, well, this is just like another book of the Bible. 
Science is the 67th book of the Bible. If you hear someone say that nonsense, that should be the first time, you know, the red flag comes up. You're trying to equate creation with God's perfect word. You're trying to create, to equate and make equal a fallen world with God's perfect and preserved word. Who are you, sir? Why can God's creation never be put on the same level? It's general revelation. It's not special revelation. It's not perfectly preserved. It is not higher even than his own name. Psalm 138.2 says God has exalted his word even above his own name. I've got news for you. He has not done that with creation. His word is perfect, Psalm 19.7 declares. But his creation is in bondage to corruption. What Romans 8.21 says, Psalm 12.7 says that God has promised to preserve his word. In fact, it says he will preserve it from this generation forever. Not for this generation, from it. Are there people that want to corrupt God's word? Absolutely. The Chinese Communist Party has decided they're going to publish their own Bible. Would you trust that? Me neither. You're laughing. (laughs) I wouldn't either. No, but God has promised to preserve his word from this generation forever. Here's my word. I'll make it plain and I'll preserve it. And that he's done. Romans 8, 19 tells us this world is broken and in need of redemption and transformation. The two cannot be equated. We cannot equate an imperfect and broken creation with God's perfect and holy word. Creation has been marred by sin and corruption. The miracle of God's word is that it has not It should be. And if I had the time, I'd show you some stuff on biblical criticism and prove to you, no, it hasn't been. It's incredible that it hasn't been. In fact, let's go into the providence of God. It was because there was so much persecution going on that the word of God was preserved so well. Because it spread like wildfire in lots of different languages. And it was one of those things where if you would have wanted to, to, to just trap it and change it, you couldn't get a hold of it. It was everywhere. It was hidden. We found parts of uh, New Testament scripture written on the back of uh, paintings that had been hanging up in Caesar's household. Preserved in museums. Take them down to do some cleaning. Like, what is this on the back? It's Greek. It's weird. And guess what it was? Scripture. It had to be hidden. What do you do with it? Somebody in Caesar's household probably got saved, probably through the preaching of Paul, and went, I've got to write some of this stuff down. Where am I going to put it? Put it on the back of the painting. Never, nobody ever touches that. It's incredible how God preserved his word through his providence, through, through persecution. It's so crazy how that works. Same thing, more providence. Sorry, I'm getting on a rabbit trail here. But same thing with the fall of Constantinople. Right, Constantinople, which was basically the bastion of Christianity in the East, if you will, falls to the Muslims in, what, 1453, I think. And everybody's, oh, my goodness, it fell. It fell to the Muslims. Do you know why we have the Bible here today in English? We didn't have good copies of the Greek. Guess what they had in Constantinople? It was still a Greek-speaking empire. Still had very good copies of the Word of God. And all those scholars went, hey, guys, uh, time's up for us here. Let's move. Where are we going? Let's move to Europe. So they went. And guess what they brought with them? Very good translations of the scriptures. Guess what we've got today because of that? God was using the crazy circumstances, what looked to be bad, if you will, what looked to be calamity. He was using it 
He was using it to get this into your hands. See what kind of sacrifice people have gone through to get this into your hands and mine? How much blood has been shed for that? How many lives have been given, laid down for this? Let me tell you about it. Kind of skipping ahead, but I will anyway. It's incredible. By the 1300s, remember, in, in Middle Ages, set this up. By the Middle Ages, the Roman Catholic Church had made it illegal to have the scriptures in vulgar tongues. What's vulgar? Common. Right? You could not have it in the common language of the people. That meant you couldn't read it. It could only be, it could only be held in Latin, and it could only be owned by the priests. So it was illegal for you to have anything of the Word of God. Verse 10 says, though it's more to be treasured than gold, yes, than much fine gold. And guess what? There were people who actually believed that. And they were willing to lay down their lives for it. By the way, gold was the most valuable physical resource in all the ancient world. Very few people in that world would ever own any gold. Typically, it was just kings. Kings, lords, nobles. That was the only ones that would own any gold. It's just too expensive. It was worth... You know, a lot of, for a lot of them, it was worth, worth more than a year's wage. One small gold coin was more than a year's wage for a poor field laborer. They're not going to own it. They've got to buy other things that are much more important, like, you know, food. And yet the psalmist tells us it's the scriptures to be more desired than gold. It's the greatest treasure of the day. God's word is to be more desired than gold. And sadly, I fear we've become so accustomed to the availability of it because we don't remember what kind of sacrifice it took to get this to us. We become so accustomed to the availability of it, we take it for granted. Uh, I can easily procure a copy anytime I want to. So big deal if I don't take care of mine or I don't read mine or I just throw it on the shelf, let it get dusty, torn up. We might say it's our greatest treasure, but the question is, is it really? It took a lot of sacrifice. Remember, Middle Ages, illegal to own it in any vulgar tongue. We take it for granted. Scriptures could only be in Latin and only held by Roman Catholic priests. And even then, only the priests who knew Latin could actually read it anyway. And by the way, if, in case you're wondering, the Latin Vulgate's not a great copy of the Scripture to start with. It's better than nothing, but it's certainly not great. Now, the law was designed to keep the common man ignorant of God's word because when he was ignorant, he was much easier to manipulate. He was much easier to make him dependent on the priest. I can have a good, cushy job as a priest. You have to come to me to ask what God thinks about whatever, and I can tell you whatever I want. And there's no way for you to check my math. Hey, you want to go to heaven? Well, it's not just, it's not just faith. It's not just faith alone in Christ alone. Oh, no, 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 no. You got to do good enough works to deserve it. Folks, that's heresy. That was being preached. That is still the official dogma of the Roman Catholic Church, which is why I say if you come to me and tell me Roman Catholic Church represents an actual form of Christianity, you will get an earful from me. Okay? It is the largest cult on earth. It is closely rivaled by Islam, but it is the largest cult on earth. I'm not going to tell somebody they should join a Roman Catholic church. I want them to come out from among her and be separate, says the Lord. 
So here's what happened because of that. The Roman Catholic cult made the scriptures illegal to hold. By the 1300s, some brave priests were speaking out against this, and they were being killed for it, by the way. They wanted the Bible to be available to every person to read in their own language. What a novel concept. They were being suppressed, tortured, and killed for their trouble. Men like John Wycliffe, John Huss, Jerome of Prague, lots of others. So little scripture was being preached in the churches of the day that Wycliffe started a society of young men who would memorize one book of the New Testament and then go town to town reciting that book for the common people at the peril of their lives. Many times when they would take the book that they would learn, they wouldn't even say their own name anymore. They would only um, identify themselves by the book now. So if you were you know, a young man and you memorized the book of Ephesians, you would no longer tell anybody your actual name. They'd say, what's your name? You'd say, I'm Ephesians. Why? Because if the Roman Catholic Church learned your name, they would persecute not just you, but your family as well. They knew that. So they basically gave up their entire identity to get the word to God's people. Are we willing to do that? Let me ask you a question, a really penetrating question. Are you willing to give up your identity to get God's words to God's people? Are you willing to give up your fame, your fortune, your well-known, your popularity? Is it that much to you? Does it mean that much to you? Is it really greater than gold? It was to them. They were called the Lollards. They were persecuted so heavily they would change their name to whatever book of the Bible and never use their real name again. It's unbelievable to see the amount of blood that was spilled by the Roman Catholic Church over this issue. Just the issue of the scriptures. Fast forward to 1536. The Protestant Reformation has begun in German-speaking lands. Kicked off by Martin Luther's 95 Thesis. Not really true. It started a long time before that. But we usually say that's the beginning of it. 1517, Martin Luther tacks up his 95 Thesis on the door of Wittenberg Church. By the way, what language was his thesis in? It was not in German. He was in Latin. You want to know why? He wasn't taking aim at the commoner. He knew where the problem was coming from. He was taking aim at the priests, the bishop, the pope. They knew it and so did he. And they wanted his blood for it. But nobody had been able to get the Reformation into the English-speaking world. It's just too much persecution, basically. In England at this time, a 10-year-old boy was tortured and killed, burned at the stake for the crime of having the Lord's Prayer on a scrap of paper in his pocket in English. Ten years old. Tortured, burned at the stake. A man and wife were caught teaching their children to memorize portions of Scripture in English. What did the Catholic Church do in response? They made all the children stand in a washtub all huddled together. I believe the youngest child was three at the time. Then as the children looked on, they took mom and dad, slit their throats, and drained their blood into the tub. Made those kids watch. That blood got up to knee high. What was the message? You better watch and see. You teach your kids the Bible, this will be your fate too. That's what was going on. Tell me Roman Catholic Church is Christian. Anti-Christian. Enter William Tyndale. Tyndale decides he'll translate the Bible into English no matter the cost. He'll get it into the hands of English-speaking people. Just the commoners. Those were his people. 
He does exactly that at the cost of his own life. I'd love to tell you the whole story, but it'll take me too long. He was strangled and burned at the stake in 1536 for the crime of heresy. He was willing to take the scriptures and put them into English for commoners to read. Guess what? You've got the scriptures in your hands today, largely because of his sacrifice. His translation work was so incredible, was so good. We still don't know how he knew all the languages that he knew. We don't know how he had such an incredible grasp of Hebrew and Greek. He had a great grasp of those languages. His translation work was so good. What you're looking at in your New King James and your King James today is still about 80% of his work from the 1500s. That's how good it was. Gave up his life. Not just his blood, by the way. Forgive me. Not just his blood. He gave up his life. He wanted to be married and have children. You know why he didn't? He said, it's going to cost me my life. I can't do it. I'll be on the run my whole life. Why? Because it's more precious to me than gold. It's worth my blood. It's worth my life. And he meant it when he said it. He laid down his life for it. A lot of times he didn't even have good clothes. He had the worst clothes, scratchy, itchy clothes, because he was using his money to print the Bible and get it into people's hands. He was willing to lay his life down for the word. And we're not willing to lay 20 minutes of our day down for it. Can't hold too close to the Bible. People will think I'm one of those religious freaks. Cost him his life and he didn't care. Got it to you? Tyndale saw God's word as his greatest treasure. And he gave his life to get it into our hands. Here we do take it for granted. The psalmist goes on to say, there's not, not only should the word of God be our greatest treasure, it's sweeter than honey. It should be our greatest pleasure. Sweet foods were exceedingly rare in the ancient world. Honey was the candy of the day. It was a rare treat, and it was to be savored at every opportunity. In fact, when you ate honey, you wouldn't just gulp it down. You wouldn't just throw it like we do, right? Throw it on bread and gulp it down. No, you, you were supposed to savor it. Very rarely did you get to, to eat food that was that sweet. So you would roll it around in your mouth. You would savor it. You'd, 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 you'd keep it there for a while. Draw all the sweetness out of it. And that's how it should be with God's word in our lives. We should do the same thing. We should savor it. Not just perfunctorily read through it. We should savor it. Roll it around in our minds. What does that really mean? How does that apply to my life? What's God trying to tell me from this passage? How is he trying to get me to live a holy and righteous life before him through this? What does it mean to live this out? I've got to move on. Moreover, verse 11, moreover, by them, your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. God's word warns us. It's our great protector. It's by the words of this book that God's servants are warned. You know why we fall into a lot of traps that we fall into? You know why we get ourselves into a lot of problems we get ourselves into? Because we don't know the words of this book. It doesn't do you any good for someone to write out a warning and give it to you if you never read it. I mean, if somebody puts up a road sign, warning, bridge out ahead, and you just drive past and don't read it, didn't do you any good, did it? Here it is. This is our greatest warning. Take heed, Christian. By the words of this book that God's servants are warned. The wisdom of this book will protect you. It's the words of this book that will keep you from being snared by the schemes of the world and the schemes of the wicked. 
The Bible will keep your foot from being caught by the user, the adulterer, the con artist, the rebel, the liar, the flatterer, the unstable, and even the heretical. It's by the words of this book that God's servants are warned. (coughs) Verses 12 and 13, who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from my secret faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. Then I shall be innocent of great transgression. God's our purifier. Psalm 119.9 says, How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. Not just listening to the word, not just hearing the word, not just knowing the word, by taking heed according to it. In other words, my life changes because of what this word says. We have a hard time understanding our own errors. That's true. The truth of the matter is we're typically not very good at seeing the sin that's in us. We're really good at seeing the sin that's in others. We're black belts at that. But because we're often so blind to our own sin, to our own weaknesses, we're liable to stumble into sin that we don't even plan on. We didn't set out to stumble into it, but we did because we didn't understand our own weaknesses, our own flaws, our own faults. And the the, the psalmist is saying that, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Why is that such a big deal? Because this book exposes that. It exposes that to you. This book is alive and active, Hebrews 4.12 tells us. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. It's the only book on earth that when you read it, it reads you. It exposes everything. In light of that, there's a final comment in verse 14. It's a prayer that I memorized as a child. God bless my precious and faithful little Methodist mother. Whose heart it breaks to know that I'm reformed and in a Baptist church. (laughs) She taught us this. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. That little church taught me that. If you've read passages like Psalm 1 or Joshua 1, many others, that, that little piece of scripture is going to look like deja vu to you. And there's a good reason for it. Listen to what Joshua 1.8 says. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. You shall meditate on it. You'll roll it over in your mind. Remember we were talking about, about honey, the sweetness, savoring it. That's what you're going to do with God's word. You're going to roll it over in your mind. You're going to read it. And you're going to think about it. You're not just going to read it for 20 minutes in the morning, th- throw the book back on the shelf, and don't come back to it for another three days. And never think of it again. No, it should be in my mind. I should be thinking about it all the time. This book of the law will not depart from your mouth. You'll meditate on it day and night. Then you'll make your way prosperous. And then you will have good success. That doesn't count. That's the Old Testament. Uh, You're the true Israel of God. That's what the scripture says. That counts for you. God's word is applicable to you today. Let the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable in in your sight. What are acceptable words? What's an acceptable meditation? (laughs) Joshua 1.8 says, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. That's an acceptable meditation. What, What are you thinking about? What are you talking about throughout the entire day? Hopefully the word of God. You want a flourishing, spiritually affluent life? 
Then let the words of your mouth and the meditation of your heart be acceptable in God's sight. What is acceptable in God's sight? What kind of thoughts and meditations? His word. His word. Scripture. The Bible. Think on these things, Philippians 4.8 tells us. Colossians 3.2 says, set your affections on the things that are above. Romans 8 says, set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. Not seek second, not seek third, not seek somewhere in there. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We live in a world of prosperity gospel nonsense. And I get that. I came out of that. But we want to push back so much that we want to say, well, the word of God doesn't have anything to do with how we do business and whether we're successful. That's not true either. The word of God does tell us. It does have principles for life. There are places in the scripture that address how we live and will actually make you prosperous. Here's one. Work is unto the Lord. Be faithful. The hand of the diligent will rule. But the frivolous, right? Don't be frivolous. Be diligent. Show up to work on time and then work hard. Don't cheat your employer. Those are really easy, basic principles from the scripture. You know what will happen? (laughs) Kenny Guzman's back there. Ask him. How hard is it to find someone that has good work ethic? How hard is it to find an employee that will come to work on time, work hard, not lie to you, and not steal money out of the till? I thought, like, that's just basic, right? I started working for the Chickasaw Nation right out of, uh, when I was in, well, actually, I was still in college. And I found something out. That's not basic. The vast, in fact, they hired me for that specific thing. They brought me in. They said, listen, we, we need to hire some people. And the reason that we're hiring you is we've had a lot of shoplifting going on. We cannot figure out. We're losing a lot of money in, in these particular stores. We want you to be at this store until we kind of get this thing straightened out. And then we might move you around, blah, blah, blah. Okay, sounds good. Guess what I found out? Shoplifting was not because there were people coming into the store and shoplifting. The vast majority of the money that was being lost, I do mean the vast majority, probably more than 90% of all the money that was being lost, was being lost by the people that were working there. They were robbing it from their employer. If you will follow the words of this book, you will not be like everyone else in the culture. And that's going to cause two things. Number one, it's going to cause discomfort. It's comfortable to be part of the crowd. It's comfortable to be just another sheep in the flock, right? But the problem is this. When you become born again, you're not like the world anymore. You won't fit into the crowd. When they all say, hey, let's go take a smoke break. We'll just steal one of these boxes of cigarettes. Nobody will ever know that actually happened. You're going to go, no. You know what? That's You're suspect now. You won't get on board and just go along with it with us. What's your problem, man? It's not a big deal. Come on, they own all this stuff. They won't miss it. It's not about them missing it. My God, the Lord of my life has told me not to do it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not, it's, I'm, it's not, I'm not mad because I am or am not taking money away from the smoke shop. I have a problem with betraying my Lord. See, that makes everybody really uncomfortable because half the people that are stealing the cigarettes probably are in church somewhere today, too. Well, I'm a Christian too. Okay. Okay. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Lord. 
Listen, if you're putting God's word into your mind, it will begin to flow out of your mouth. The meditations of your heart will drive the words of your mouth. If the meditations of your heart are sinful, are sensual, are built around things that are not God-honoring, the words of your mouth will become that way too. You don't clean up your mouth by deciding, I'm not going to say bad words. It won't work. Ask me how I know. Played college football once. My vocabulary was a bit different than it is today. How does it change? By putting God's word into my mind. God's word is what will do the cleansing. Not me setting artificial rules up in my mind. God's word will do the cleansing. I put God's word into my mind. If I put God's word into my heart, it will flow out of my mouth. It will become the guard over my mouth. When I start to, about to, the Holy Spirit will clamp down on my tongue. He may not have to do that for you, but he does, does have to do that for me. At least every now and again. God's word is the healer of that. We should be a people who hunger and thirst for God's word. It is perfect. It's pure. It's peerless. If we want to be people who speak God's word, and we should, then we must be people who first seek God's word. We've got to spend time in it, real time in it. We must be people who are diligent to read it, diligent to meditate on it, diligent to memorize it, because until we do that consistently, it won't be quick on our tongues. God's word is perfect and pure. And in keeping it, there is great reward. It will change you. It will change nations. Let me give you an example, and I'll close with that. The Caribbean Islands. You may have heard of the Caribbean Islands. The Caribbean Islands are named because there was a, an indigenous tribe of people that lived there called the Caribs. The Caribs were a warlike tribe. In fact, when they went to war, if they conquered you, they typically ate you. Or they did something, what I thing is actually maybe even far worse, which was they would capture your kids and then castrate them and then feed them and basically fatten them up like a pig and then have a big festival and eat them. That's the Caribs. Why isn't it like that today in the Caribbean islands? You go to the Caribbean islands today, you go stay in a sandals resort, see the beach, beautiful. You don't have to worry about somebody running you through with a spear and eating you. Why? Because your Christian brothers and sisters did that for you. What's Christ ever done? What's Christianity ever done for the world? Well, missionaries went there and some of them sacrificed their lives getting the gospel to the Caribs. Eventually, and I don't remember if it was like the chief of the tribe, one of the big high ups, became born again. And the entire tribe basically became Christianized. Years later, a Frenchman, an atheist French, a deist, French philosopher visited and he was chiding some of the members of the tribe because, oh, you're Christians. You believe that, that fairy tale nonsense, huh? And finally, the guy had had enough of it. And he said, you see that rock over there, the big stain on it? You'd have come here before we were Christian. That's where we would have smashed your head in. You see that big hole in that, in that rock over there? That was the oven. That's where we'd have cooked and ate you. So you don't like Christianity? Well, just a little late. Should have come earlier. Get a real taste for it. What's Christianity ever done for anything? It's changed the world, and it'll change you. God's word will change you. It will change nations. It is changing the world. You cannot stop the gospel. So speak it.
Speak it. It's worthy. It's worth more than gold. It's sweeter than honey. There are lost people who need to hear it. Your programs, your being their friend is not going to change them. They've got to have God's word. And you have to be brave enough to speak it. You don't have to be shocking. You don't have to be rude. But you have to be brave enough to speak God's word. That's what will change their lives. That's what will change their hearts. That's what will change us. Let's pray. God, let us be a people who hunger and thirst for your word. As the deer pants for the water, let us thirst for your word. Let it be an insatiable desire in our souls. Let us be people of your word, God. Let us find your word sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. Let it be said of the people here, God, that we are people of God's word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.